Thank you, Matt. And it's good to be with you again this morning, Clemson Presbyterian Church. See, we have a platform now, so some stable footing. Um, sorry to have missed the last uh, couple of weeks. I want to give Steve and Matt in the session just a word of thanks. Uh, we were scheduled, I was scheduled to preach the first two Sundays in January, but our family uh, came down with the COVID virus on January the 1st. So that's how our 2021 began. And um, so it took us our time quarantining and whatnot, but we're on the back end of it, and thankfully the Lord was gracious to us and symptoms were, were mild, and so we're just beginning to get our routines back under us. But it, it threw off the, the Psalm series as um, Steve and Matt had planned it, where it was going to be moving through Psalms, where each week you were a little further into the Psalms than the week before. And so with Psalm 2 this morning, we're a little bit out of joint. You've had Psalm 6 and then Psalm 42 last week, and then we're moving back this morning to to Psalm 2. But perhaps it's apropos to be in Psalm 2. Uh, as I've, I've preached from Psalm 2 in 2015 when uh, President Obama was the president. I preached from Psalm 2 in 2018 when President Trump was the president. And now this first Sunday with President Biden in, in office, uh, Psalm 2 continues to provide the exact same truth and the exact same comfort to the hearts of, of God's people, even in the midst of changing administrations and changing times. As I drove in this morning, uh, the exit I pulled off of coming from Greenville had a, a store on the right that sells paddle boards and I think kayaks. And Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 make me think of something that you need. If you're going to take a kayak out on a smooth lake or on a river, all you need is your kayak and a good kayak paddle. But if you're going to kayak out in the open ocean where the waves are larger, and that kayak is far more unstable on its own, they suggest you, you fit it with something called an outrigger. And an outrigger is, is a perpendicular piece, of two pieces usually, that they run perpendicular to the kayak and they extend out two or three feet. And at the end of the outrigger on each side is, is some kind of, uh, it looks almost like a miniature kayak, maybe a couple feet long. It's, it's buoyant, it floats, it might be inflatable, it might be made of, of uh, some kind of foam. But by its extension, it stabilizes the kayak so that it can't, it can't turn or, or rotate nearly as much. And you need that when you go into the more turbulent waters of the open ocean kayaking. Can you picture that in your minds? If those of you who've never seen one of these, uh, a kayak with these out, this outrigger stabilizing it in the midst of turbulent waters. And the Psalms assume that we are moving in this life through turbulent waters, both individually as we move through the turbulent waters of the sins that we commit, the sins that we experience others have committed, and then just the brokenness of this fallen world, as well as the turbulence that we experience as the church of Jesus Christ, together with our brothers and sisters now throughout the world, in our conflict with the world and the flesh and the devil. And, and Psalms, the Psalms assume that we're moving through turbulent waters and they outfit us in Psalms 1 and 2 with an outrigger. On the one side, Psalm 1, which calls us to a commitment to God's word. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. That's, that's a picture of a man or woman who has, who has leaned their ear into the word of God 
and is seeking to make sure they are not distracted by or seduced by a world of competing voices, competing ways, with, with slick, grabby lines like scoffers. But no, he or she has set their hearts to delight on and to meditate in the law of the Lord. And, and a New Testament verse that, that parallels that is, is Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Ah, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So on the one side, to stabilize us, we need a firm commitment to God's word and, and an alertness to competing and, 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 uh, and different voices that would see, seek to turn us off the path. Psalm 2. We also need to be stabilized in this life, to be unintimidated by the world. If we are afraid of the world, if we are intimidated by its threats and its powers, that will not only unsettle us deeply in our souls, it will make us prayerless because we will begin to spend all of our energy, all of our mental energy, all of our emotional energy ruminating and researching and fretting and thinking how to protect ourselves in the midst of a scary world. And Psalm 2 is that psalm that equips us individually, but also corporately as the church, to be unintimidated by the world. And if you have this, this outrigger in place on, on the kayak of your faith, committed to the word, unintimidated by the world, you might have a chance of cutting a line through the ocean for as long as God has you here. But you'll also have your eyes open to truths in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, that Psalms 3 through Psalms 150 will reiterate and show in all kinds of different ways and reinforce. So as we come to Psalm 2, we are assuming a commitment to God's Word. We're assuming something of Psalm 1. The blessed man who delights himself in the law of the Lord. And now in Psalm 2, let us hear God's way of teaching us to think and to pray in a way that will begin to expel, if, the, if it's there in us, and it's there in us, isn't it? A sense of fear and intimidation by the world. So Psalm 2, follow with me. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Christ, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge 
in him. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of the Lord remains forever. Let us go to him now in prayer. Gracious God, we come to you with hearts that are easily tossed and blown by the things of our lives and the things of our world. But you can be a refuge for us. And we come to you seeking that refuge. Would you, through the word, plant your seeds of truth, the seeds of the kingdom, deep within our heart, and make our hearts fertile soil to receive that seed, that it may grow and bear fruit in our lives in the unique ways that you have called each of us to bear that fruit. We make that prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll look at four things that this psalm opens our eyes to as we learn to, to understand it and to, and to pray it. And the first thing that we see is a question already answered. A question already answered. I know that there's nothing unique about me in saying that in life I, I struggle with anxiety. That's a fairly normal condition for the fallen human being. And anxiety is that intense response that you have when something just didn't, didn't go right. Uh, maybe you just had an awkward conversation with someone and now you're thinking as they walk away, they're going to write me off. And I would too if I were them. I can't believe I said that that way. Or anxiety can be afraid of, of public speaking. I was really encouraged to hear R.C. Sproul say at like age 72 that he always felt anxious before public speaking. Anxiety um, makes us ask this question, what's going to happen now? What's going to happen to me now that I've, that I've uh, meddled up that conversation? Or what's going to happen to me if I say the wrong thing in front of everyone? And I remember being 26 years old, the first time that that anxious question presented itself in a different way. I just had an awkward conversation with someone whose esteem mattered to me, and I didn't know them that well yet. And as they walked away, I thought, they, they're going to write me off. That's how this is going to go, and, and I can't believe it. And, and then this question came to my mind that I don't recall having ever, having ever thought before, and it was this. Why do I always get so anxious about things that usually turn out fine? Why do I always get so anxious about things that in 26 years of life usually turn out fine? That question was kind of liberating because the question included the answer. And to this day, that's a question I ask myself when I feel the sudden wave of anxiety sweep over me. Why do I get so anxious about things that usually turn out Fine. The question includes the answer. And, and God here in Psalm 2 teaches us to ask a question that includes the answer. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Matthew 16, 18, Jesus had made this grand promise to his church when he said to Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell, or the gates of Hades, shall not prevail against it. And 2,000 years later, we can see as it concerns Christ's church, that the gates of hell have not prevailed against it. The church throughout the world and throughout different epochs and eras has faced the plots and the conspiring of men against her countless times. And yet we see indeed that it has always been, in the end, in vain. 
I was reading John Calvin this week, a, a, a book he wrote in 1515 called Concerning Scandals, in 1550. And then he, he said something that was deeply consoling. There was a lot going on in Europe in 1550. Calvin was in many ways at the height of his intellectual powers and near the height of his influence. And he followed closely everything that was happening, not only in Geneva, but in the rest of in, in Switzerland and in France and Germany and particularly in England and elsewhere. And he says, at this present moment, it is absolutely impossible to see what is coming next. There is simply too much swirling in the air that is affected by this and that and all of it very, very fragile. There is no way that anyone could see through the fog and predict what's going to happen next. All you can do is live your life and make your plans based on what has happened that is established and what you take in is happening today. It's, it's simply too murky. It's too foggy. And what a, what a comfort to see as you're trying to see the future that if Calvin couldn't see it and God used him just fine, so it is with us. If we can't see the future, God can use us just fine. But Calvin's successor in Geneva, a man named Theodore Beza, he lived through times that were even more turbulent than Calvin's. Calvin died in 1564. Beza lived until 1605. Things got more turbulent in and around Geneva in Beza's day. But he reflected on the history of the church and he wrote this wonderful line. He said, The church is an anvil that has worn out many a hammer. The church is an anvil that has worn out many a hammer. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain. The second verse answers further this question. Why, why do the nations do this? Why, why do they plot in vain? Well, they take counsel against the Lord and against His anointed, against, against the eternal God and against His Christ, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. It's a picture of how the unbeliever sees the Word of God. And many of us may remember a time in our lives that we were unbelievers, that we didn't have peace with God through Christ. We had not yet discovered the treasures of the gospel. And to hear the word of God read or preached or to read ourselves, it didn't strike us as a delight, the way it landed on the soul of the man in Psalm 1. No, it, it strikes us with dread. It strikes us as a burden, as something that is constricting and hindering and limiting. And so it is with the kings of the earth and the rulers who, who may not know Christ. The same is true there. The, the word of God is seen as a, as a bond to cast off. The French Revolution happened at the end of the 18th century. And it was essentially a revolution designed to, to throw away old, old uh, church hierarchies and any remaining sense of God's revelation speaking to all conditions of life and to enthrone pure reason as the only arbiter of all things public. But there was an interesting aspect to the, the ambitions of the French Revolution. You see, they decided they wanted to change the week from a seven-day week, six days of work, one day of rest, to a ten-day week with nine days of work and, and one day of rest. And it was an interesting change to attempt because the week is a strange thing if you think about it. Of all the measures of time that we have in our lives, uh, the, the big ones all relate to astronomical movements. We get our year from our circuit around the sun. We get our month from the, the movements and phases of the moon. And we get our days from 
a full turn of the earth on its axis. But a week? Where do we get a week? Scholars of ancient history say the world gets its week from the Bible. That's from Genesis 1 and 2 is where we got this idea of measuring time in seven days and trying to give people one day off for rest and for worship. Well, the French Revolution, they thought that's not very mathematical. We wanna, we, they, they implemented the metric system at this time. Ten days makes more sense. Nine days work, one day week, three weeks per month. So they implemented this. And it wasn't long before people began to have mental breakdown and, and, and they began to have physical breakdown. And, and even the horses couldn't do their work nine days a week with only one day off. And it was only a matter of years when, when Napoleon came back to power that they went back to a seven-day week. But something about this institution of God, this creation ordinance of a seven-day week was seen as a, as a burden and a bond that needed to be cast off instead of embraced. And the attempt was ultimately in time in vain. But the main point of this question is, is for us to learn how to pray and to pray with confidence instead of thinking, why is the world such a mess and what is going to happen to me? We learn to pray, why is the world such a mess and why do people rebel against God in vain? So we begin with a question already answered. Then in verses 4 to 6, our eyes are open to something glorious, to a seat already taken. To a seat already taken. First, in verse 4, we, we turn our eyes from this world and we lift them for a moment up to heaven and we see that he who sits in the heavens laughs. I, I love the way that the psalm moves us to, to see how the Lord is responding to this. My kids right now are, are 9, 7, and 5, and they love to watch nature shows, and especially nature shows that are about, about uh, the young in nature, uh, little wolf pups or little lion cubs. And some of you all have probably seen nature shows, say one about a, a lioness raising her cubs and all the challenges they face. But there's always that that moment in the documentary when these little lion cubs are still learning their environment and every little movement in the grass causes them to perk up their ears and widen their eyes and, and all their senses to go on full alert. And it might be that it's just a, a, a gazelle or an antelope walking by. And the lion cubs look at it and wonder, is that a threat? Is that a threat? And then they look over to their mother to see her face. And they see that she sees the gazelle and she either yawns or she licks her chops. And, and either way, these little lion cubs learn from the face of the mother, that's not a threat to her. And so we'll calibrate our response accordingly. We don't need to see that now or in the future as a threat to us either. And that's what Psalm 2 does. He who sits in the heavens, how is he responding to all the real turmoil and real attempts at rebellion, and real attempts at, at oppression. How's he responding to this in heaven? Well, it's a bit jarring at first. It says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. Now, I, I used to wonder if that meant that God's just unconcerned. Is he just so far removed? This doesn't affect me, so I can chuckle. No, it's not, it's not signaling that he's unconcerned about things here down on earth, as, as we have heard in the scriptures even already this morning, heard it prayed. He is sovereign over the movement of every sparrow. He knows the numbers of the hairs on our head. There's nothing that you have read in the news or experienced in your personal life 
that he does not know intimately in its every detail. The posture of laughing signals that he's unthreatened. He's unthreatened. Some of you all may remember from high school, I don't know if they still read it today, but Jonathan Swift wrote that book, Gulliver's Travels. And big old Gulliver is traveling through the land of the Lilliputians, the tiny little people, so small that Gulliver might accidentally step on them and squash them. But if I remember the story correctly, Gulliver uh, falls asleep outdoors at one point in his travel through the little people's land. And as he's asleep, the Lilliputians come together and conspire to tie him down. And so they drive in their stakes beside his large slumbering body and they cast their ropes over him and they're crawling over him and they're fastening the ropes down and they succeed. When Gulliver awakens, he is restrained and he is unable to move and he's overcome with fear. And I wonder if sometimes as we read about our world and hear of this plan or the rumor of that plan, if we deep down, we would never say it, but we wonder if our God is like Gulliver and whether the powers that be might successfully hold him down and how terrible that would be for us. The news of the whole Bible and of Psalm 2 is that the scale is so off. God is so far greater in his infinite power and might that we little people, even in our collective strength, even with our best intentions and our strongest ropes, we could never tie God down. We could never thwart him from carrying out his holy purposes. Our God is not like Gulliver. And so, in the heavens, he sits and he laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Now, we can affirm God's omnipotence, but still have a lot of fear and anxiety in our hearts because we think, if I were in charge of the universe, this is not how I would run it. I would run it differently. But that's why the psalm then continues to tell us what God is doing in his grand plan. It speaks of him saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That's speaking of the holy hill in heaven and the heavenly Mount Zion, the real capital city of the universe where the legislation and decrees that are made are affected throughout all of time and all of history. And God's saying, I have set my king on my holy hill. We confess from the scriptures that after Jesus was raised bodily from the dead in that, that same body that had been born in Mary's womb and raised in Nazareth and then ministered for those several years in Judea and some of the northern parts of Israel and then been crowned with thorns and crucified and laid to rest in a tomb. He was with that same body raised from the dead on the third day and then came a mysterious 40 days where he's appearing and disappearing and teaching his disciples how to see him and all of the scriptures, when he then on the 40th day after his resurrection ascends to heaven. And I don't know whether you've thought much about this. The first time I ever heard it, it was, it was one of the most wonderful truths I'd ever heard. But have you ever thought that when he ascended to heaven, he ascended to heaven bodily. And when heaven received him, it received him bodily. 
And when he entered into heaven, he did not then, what did he do with his body? Did, did he step out of it and put it in some shadow box in the museum of redemption that people, when they die and they're in glory, they can go and see, oh, that, that was the body that Jesus was in for those 30-some years and carried out our redemption. No, dear friends, when the Son of God joyfully agreed to take to himself a human nature and become God with us, that was a decision that he made for forever. He was born a man. And he is now forever the God-man. And he is seated with all authority. There is a man in heaven. There was a, a, a Christian theologian in Scotland some generations ago named Rabbi Duncan, and, and this is the way he put it, reflecting on the ascension of Christ. The dust of the earth now sits on the throne of the universe. My friends, that is true. As for me, I have set my king on my holy hill. Why do we little people get anxious? If any one, any one leader, any one nation, any one council aspired to sit on the throne of the universe and they ever saw it, they would see that the seat, dear friends, is already taken. And it's taken by Jesus Christ. Now what is he doing? We've seen a question already answered in verses 1 to 3. A seat already taken in verses 4 to 6. The third thing Psalm 2 helps us to see and appreciate is a plan well underway. A plan well underway. I will tell of the decree. Now stop right there. Stop. I love those words. Uh, for the last three weeks, my own soul has personally just been camping out in verse 7. I will tell of the decree. Decree comes from Latin and it means something decided, something that is irreversible, something that kings do. Uh, a decree is how Daniel ended up in the lion's den. If you remember that story of Daniel and King Darius, Daniel was on good terms with King Darius. They were, they were buds. But King Darius's counselors had convinced him to issue a decree for 30 days. That for 30 days, if anyone was found praying to any god or to any other man other than King Darius, that they be thrown into the lion's den. And of course, they were angling to get Daniel without telling King Darius that was their design. But King Darius issued the decree. And sure enough, a few days later, they came running back to King Darius. We found Daniel praying with his windows open toward Jerusalem. Not to you. King Darius' heart was broken because he loved Daniel. But the decree was irreversible. And that is how Daniel ended up in the lion's den. The God's decree overruled the king's decree. Daniel survives that night in the lion's den. And having survived it, he's then extracted. And the king, King Darius, then issues a subsequent decree to all of his land that the God of Daniel will be worshipped and honored. It's, it's an amazing story of irreversible decrees. Now, our God rules by decrees. Many of them we know. A lot of them we don't. I've so enjoyed watching online uh, J.R. Foster's sermon that he preached, I think on January 3rd, the first Sunday of the new year from right here. And it was on Deuteronomy 29, 29. 
Uh, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children. There are secret things that God is doing that we don't know, but some things are revealed. And this right here is one of them. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations for your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. That's the plan, dear friends, that Jesus would inherit not some of the nations, but all of them. That he would build himself a kingdom that would come to include every nation to the furthest ends of the earth. This psalm was written a thousand years before Jesus was born. Acts 4 tells us that, that David wrote it. So a thousand years before Jesus was born, there was a little tiny nation at this time in the Middle East that believed that their God would one day put a man on the throne, a descendant of David, who would have title not just to Israel and its surrounding neighbors, but to all the nations of the world. A thousand years later, that king comes. And I want you to reflect on this as we sit here today in Clemson, South Carolina, which according to Google is 6,330 miles from Jerusalem. Let me begin with a question. How many of you here have Jewish ancestry? I'm guessing it's just a few, not many. Most of us are from the nations, from the Gentiles. Which means that when this psalm was written in 1000 BC roughly, our ancestors were not worshiping Yahweh. That means that when Jesus was born and even when he raised from the dead, our ancestors were not waiting to greet him and to bend the knee to him. Our, our ancestors were far from God, as Paul says in Ephesians. You might, you might have thought in your own mind, well, my family's kind of always been Christian. Or maybe if your parents weren't Christian, you trace it back. My grandparents were Christian. My family's kind of always been Christian. Not if you go back far enough. Somewhere down your family tree may be Romans who are worshiping Jupiter and Apollos and Mercury. Or Greeks worshiping Zeus. Or Celts worshiping Tutatis and Asus and Tyrannus, which means they were practicing human sacrifice. Or Africans worshiping Dundare and Chidamutanda. Or Scandinavians worshiping Odin and Thor. In ways that would turn your stomach. And they would be our ancestors, unless you can trace it back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and part of the faithful remnant, that small faithful remnant waiting for the Messiah, our ancestors would be shocked to see us here today. On a day that we call the Lord's Day because it corresponds to the resurrection of a Jewish man from the dead 2,000 years ago. And we worship him as God in the flesh, now enthroned in heaven, claiming all the nations of the world. They would be shocked to see us here. Yet here we are, not just in Clemson, South Carolina, but believers from the nations throughout the world today. My point is this. This plan that God has for his Messiah is well underway, and we not only see it with our eyes, we are living it in our very 
lives. We are the fruit of what God has already been doing for 2,000 years, bringing the nations into the inheritance of his son, Jesus Christ. And what good it does for our souls when we remember that, that somewhere back down the line, the first member of my family tree was called out of the dominion of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom there is redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 1.13. Dear friends, our God's plan is well underway. It's not yet finished. It speaks in verse 9 of the day when Jesus shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The them that's being spoken of there is, is either the, the, the leaders who, who lead the nations into defiance of God or just that defiant character within the nations. It's not speaking of the, the breaking and ending of the nations. No, these are Jesus' prized inheritance. But that defiant character will be broken and the nations shall at last exist in, in the beauty of his holiness. But we're waiting for that day. That's the part of the plan that's not yet here. He continues through the missionary work of the church to call new nations and new people groups into his kingdom. And we're waiting for that day when he will do that final thing of breaking the defiant character of the nations and sifting the wheat from the chaff and establishing his kingdom of all nations, every tribe, nation, and tongue in the new heavens and new earth forever. But that day will come in the Lord's way and in the Lord's time. And maybe that, that line needs to knock on your heart and, and take a step in as you feel anxiety and are fretting about the state of the world. That day will come in the Lord's way and in the Lord's time. But until then, we are seeing the fruit of his plan. We are living the fruit of his plan, a plan well underway. Now, as you begin to see these things in Psalm 2, that some, of the, some of the fear and anxiety and fretting begins to dissipate and kind of fall off you. And you, you begin to feel strong. You begin to feel some courage. You begin to feel some readiness to go and serve God in the place and in the generation that he has you. And that courage might take you to a place where you become contemptuous or dismissive of those who are in authority. And this Psalm won't let you do that. Because it then turns and addresses the king's and addresses the rulers of the earth. It issues them the call of the gospel, that they might come and be wise and be warned and know God's Christ and serve him with fear and trembling, to, to kiss the son, a sign of submission, kind of like kissing the ring, lest he be angry, and that they might, too, find refuge in him. And if there's a New Testament passage that goes with that, one of them would be uh, first, uh, Second Timothy excuse me, 1 Timothy 2.1, where the church is, is encouraged and exhorted to make intercessions and prayers and thanksgivings and supplication for all people, including uh, kings and those in high places. Every administration, every president to be prayed for by your church, to be prayed for in your personal life. One thing that praying for those in, in positions of authority does is Sometimes the Lord may answer that to bring them to saving faith. If we had time, I'd take a few minutes to tell you about King Alfred in England, King Alfred the Great. Perhaps no figure in Western history has been more influential in government and law in Western history than King Alfred. 
Christ captured his heart, and King Alfred loved the Psalms. He read them twice or more every day. He would spend the time singing some of the Psalms. But whether that happens in the heart of our rulers, there's something that certainly happens in our hearts when we pray for those in authority. It keeps us from hating them. And it, it gives us compassion for them as we long that they too might know the Lord and serve him. But the last thing that we see in this psalm is as we have seen a question already answered, a seat already taken, and a plan well underway, is we see a superior worth serving. And that's what we see at the very end. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. The last word in this English translation is a pronoun, him. Do you know what the last word in the Hebrew is? It's him. It's the same one. I'm just kind of playing with you. It's the same word. And in the Old Testament times, they would have wondered, generation after generation, who is he? Who will he be? Some things were outlined for them about the Christ, that he's going to be a descendant of David. He's going to be of David's line. Um, They're going to know that he's going to be given authority that, that will never end. He's going to be a wonderful counselor, a a, a phrase that means not so much one who sits by you and gives good advice, but it's, it's a word that really means a brilliant, grand strategist. He's going to be mighty God. He's going to be everlasting father. Jesus the Christ will have the fatherly love and and shepherding heart over his people that we'd want in a ruler. He's going to be the prince of peace. In his kingdom, people from different backgrounds and nations come together and have peace in him. But all along they're wondering, who, who is he? And we have the privilege in the new covenant of reading the gospels and then coming back to a psalm, blessed are all those who take refuge in him and be able to say, I know who you are. Of all the billions of men who have ever lived, there was this one named Jesus of Nazareth. He had a three-year public ministry after his inauguration into the office of Messiah at his public baptism by this man named John the Baptist. And, And everyone who reads the Gospels is at least to some extent mesmerized by him. He had the ability to strike terror and fury in the hearts of these scowling Pharisees. And then the very next day, meet a woman at the well and make her feel safe. He had the brilliance of being able to take an antagonistic question, tell me who is my neighbor, coming from an expert in the law seeking to trap him, and answer it with this beautiful story of the Good Samaritan that is now told throughout the world. And he had the fortitude to be that Good Samaritan in his life saving those who had completely, they were on the verge of perishing, naked and to be pitied in their sin. No life that's been ever lived compares to the life of this Jesus of Nazareth. And the great news is that just this Jesus of Nazareth is the one that God has put on his throne for forever. I know who you are. 
My friends, is there anything more wonderful than that? Out of the Old Testament, we get the shape of this office, the office of the Christ, and we're left wondering, who will fill it? Who will fill it? And then we read the New Testament, and we see Jesus fills it. This is the whole message in the gospel in the book of Acts. They go around saying, Jesus is the Christ. That Jesus is the Christ. He's the one who fills this office. And it's a source of courage and comfort and a reason for praise. And it's also a reason to pause for a moment and just to ask, do you know this Jesus? Have you read a better life? Have you read of anyone more wonderful? Do you know that this is the one that God, he is God's own son eternally become man. Not just to die for our sins like a priest, not just to speak us the truth about ourselves and God's will like a prophet, but also to be enthroned on high as a king forever. And we may not always understand how and why he's doing the things he's doing, but we know that he's bringing all the nations in as his inheritance. And we know that we've seen that so substantially fulfilled in the church already. But he is the superior worth serving, that kings should serve, that rulers should serve, and that you and I should serve. And if we serve him, we'll never regret it. I'll finish with this story. Um, In 1990, an author named Kazuo Ishiguro wrote a a short and really moving novel called The Remains of the Day. Have any of you all read The Remains of the Day? Um, The first time I, I preached this message and mentioned this this uh, book, I found out afterwards that it had been turned into a movie. I, di- I didn't know that. A movie starring Anthony Hopkins. Maybe you've seen the movie. It's an odd casting, in my opinion. Anthony Hopkins doesn't really seem to fit the main character in this novel. Uh, the main character is um, a butler at an old English house between World War I and World War II. And if you were a fan of Downton Abbey, as our family was, it's, that's kind of the scene. A grand house with a lord and his family and whole you know, group of servants under the lead butler. And this butler had been very proud of his service to a man, to his, his lord, Lord Darlington. And he was especially proud of these couple key years after World War I, shortly before World War II, when his English lord in this house played host to a series of secret meetings that involved high-level officials in England, in France, and in Germany. And for this butler, it was his finest hour, polishing silver for the most important man, men, serving his butler as he was doing this noble service, and dignifying his own office as a butler by keeping everything in highest secrecy. The novel picks up with his lord having uh, died an American having bought the house and giving this butler several weeks of vacation for the first time in his life. And during his vacation, he's going around and visiting several of the former staff who now serve in other houses throughout England and other places. And he's reconnecting with them. And for the first time, he's hearing the rest of the story. That that high watermark in his mind of his service as a butler that had made him feel that his life was so worthwhile had actually been the occasion when the English and the French with the Germans, at the Germans' request, gave the Germans the extra leash that they wanted after World War II, were able then to rebuild their armaments 
And it all set up the horrors of World War II. And it is heartrending to read of this man who's now late in life. He can't go live his, his years of strength again. Coming to the recognition that the very best service that he had offered to what he thought was the very best man and the very best cause had actually aided the worst moment in the 20th century in Europe. My dear friends, as a minister of the gospel, I have the authority of God's word to tell you that Jesus is worth serving. And there is no act of obedience you will ever give him that you will ever regret. There is no sacrifice you will ever make of goods or relationships or opportunities for him that you will ever regret. There is nothing he will ever call you to do no matter how hard that if you follow him in it, you will later in life wonder what did I do with my best years following Jesus Christ. He is Jesus, that beautiful God-man, now in the office forever of the Christ. And he alone is a superior, utterly worth serving with everything that you have. Whether you are the lowest person on the totem pole, or whether you are a king or ruler in authority. Psalm 2 teaches us to pray as those who see a question already answered, a seat already taken, a plan well underway, and a superior worth serving. And as our eyes are open to those things, we go from being in a place where we're fretting and anxious and ruminating and wringing our hands to a place where though nothing has changed in the world today, Something massive has changed in my heart and I can raise my hands in confident praise to such a glorious King, Jesus Christ, and to such a glorious God, his everlasting Father, who is now my Father and my refuge through him. May that be true of us this day, together with the people of God throughout the world. Let us pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for the Psalms and we thank you for how they gave us a picture of Christ. And we thank you for the way that you have executed perfectly on your decree. And we thank you for the life of Jesus now lived that we get to see and know and take refuge in and celebrate. Lord, for any man or woman here who, who knows the name of Christ, has known his redemption, his forgiveness, and found peace with him, but who feels sometimes the turbulence of this world, would you sturdy them with the truths of Psalm 2? And Lord, if there's any man or woman or child who doesn't know you, but is curious and is investigating these things, would you show them that the scriptures say that the Jesus of the Gospels is the Christ that the Old Testament promises? And that this promise at the end of the psalm is true for them, no matter where they've been, no matter what they've done, no matter what they regret, today it could be true of them. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Would you give them the faith to do so? We make this prayer in Jesus' name.